Welcome to History 21, the podcast, a production of the Anoka County Historical Society, sharing the stories and audio journeys from our county's past and present. Good afternoon, Sarah. Hello, Rebecca. How goes it? Uh, We were doing a lot of stuffing this morning. I was going to make a crack about turkeys, but Thanksgiving's way too far away for that. It is. We need spring. We need summer. (laughs) We were stuffing the ballots for our members. So members in the next couple weeks, please return those so that you can vote for our board of directors and make sure that we have a good governance board leading this organization. And read the instructions. Please read the instructions. If you got two, that's not a mistake. You just have a household (laughs) membership. And uh, now we are prepping for the next podcast episode. Using our spiffy diffy new microphones, may we add. <laughs> We're testing them out. We'll, we'll see what, we'll see how they turn out. Ever the skeptic. <laughs> but what is this episode? I had the joy of sitting down with Vicki Wendell again. Haven't actually had a real conversation with her in a while because she's been off living a retired life. And she came back to kind of update us on her retired life a little bit, but mostly to tell some stories about what ACHS was back in the day. And there's a a couple little fun tidbits about when they got internet (laughs) or when (laughs) there was a very large artifact dropped off at the back door, like a ding dong ditch situation. Vicki has such a history with this organization. She started in the 90s? 30 years before she retired five years ago. (laughs) They do exact dates in the episode. (laughs) When did you first meet her? It was in my interview, actually. She was sitting on the board to um, hire me, and so she got to ask some questions. And so it was the first point that I met her. But the first day that I started here, um, I asked her where the coffee pot was. And she looked at me with this blank expression, and she's like, oh, we don't have a coffee pot. I just took over a job with a bunch of people who don't drink coffee. This was not on the interview questions. Red flag, red flag. Total red flag. I don't drink coffee. Next, yeah, Sarah's one of the culprits. The next day, I came in, and there was a coffee pot with a bow on it. Right? And that's the same one that we use now. Green flag, green flag. (laughs) All my problems were solved. (laughs) I met Vicki. She has no memory of this. I met her when I was a wee one at the Anoka County Fair. We're talking like elementary school age that she was working for the Historical Society and at the little farmhouse at the county fair. And it was just on the edge of the border of where my mom said I could go alone. <laughs> You're pushing limits even then. So <laughs> I would go through our little farmhouse multiple times a day and see Vicky all of the time <laughs> and hunt there. So that's my when I met Vicky for the first time. That's an awesome story. I love it. And now we get to hear from her. We do. Onward, as we say. Vicki Wendell, it is so exciting to have you back. It's fun. In the building, in person. It's fun. I've missed you a lot. I miss being here, but my life is so different that 
it would be hard to be here again. Is it five years you've been retired? Yeah. I've been going five years without you already. <laughs> I think that's the scarier thought for me. When I first started, it was, oh, Vicky's here. Everything's going to be fine. You were my airbag. Well, that was because I'd been here so long, the grass was growing around my feet, and they built the building around me. You know, you know a lot of stuff that way, just by osmosis. Which I suppose, for the people that don't know you, we should backtrack a little bit and say, officially, your title here was program coordinator. Yeah, but that just meant I did everything from unplug the toilet to go out and shovel the snow and then make a pitch to the county commissioners for the board meeting. <laughs> and jacks of all trades. Mm -hmm. So how did you get involved with ACHS in the beginning part? I first started out as a volunteer. I came to a couple of programs that they had umpteen years ago and then kind of got roped into, hey, you can talk to people and you like kids. We got a whole bunch of school tours coming. Can you come do school tours at Colonial Hall? Sure, I can do that. And I was a volunteer for two, three years. And then one of the gals that was on the staff at the time, nobody was full time, she was hurt her back. She was, so she was out for a while. And then she said she wasn't going to come back. So how or why the strings they pulled, I got hired on for 20 hours a week. And that was in 1989. And it just kind of stayed. I never left. They built the building around me. <laughs> so your first memory is with the, what's now the Big White House, Colonial Hall. Yep. The History Center was actually at Banfield for a little while before that. Yes. And before that, it was a case in the courthouse. A case, like a literal box? Um, they gave us, started out, the Historical Society started out, and all they did was they would meet a couple times a year and they'd talk about, you know, the old timers and things like that. They would collect stuff and they kept all this stuff in people's homes. And then the county commissioners got involved and they said, well, we'll, since it's a county historical society, we'll give you a, an attic. You can put stuff in the attic of the old courthouse. So things got put in the attic. Well, that eventually didn't work either. And then Banfield was in uh, 1968, the Banfield Lockhouse. That was going on through the park department and they wanted some, but something in the house. So they offered the house to the Historical Society. So for a while, for just a very short while, we gave tours and furnished the Banfield Lockhouse and had some events and stuff there. By 1970, that idea was changing already, and in 1971 is when Colonial Hall opened, and we were there until 2002. So when you were at Colonial Hall being a wonderful program person, how was the organization growing and changing at that point? Oh, boy, the 90s were really, uh, it was really kind of hard in a lot of ways because we were going from the little old ladies in the house on the corner that didn't let you touch anything and kept the door locked all the time to wanting to be a professional museum with a professional staff, well-trained staff that knew how to handle artifacts other than just put them in a box and understood the importance of provenance understood the importance of proper storage. That transition was not easy for staff, uh, which ended up pretty much all changing except for me. And it was really rough on 
members too. They, the first Christmas in this building was rocky. Um, people really wanted to see the house all decorated. We used to spend a week or more solid being closed and we bring in hordes of volunteers and decorate everything from floor to ceiling and all three floors of Colonial Hall. We had boxes upon boxes upon boxes of Christmas stuff. And that's what people wanted to see. And we didn't have that here. So it was really hard on some of the older, you know, old long-term, not older members, long-term members. It was really hard for them to see us move here and move out of Colonial Hall. So the original intent was that we were going to keep Colonial Hall as an old house museum and have our modern professional history center here in the building on North Third Avenue. How come that didn't work out as planned? Well, let's put dollar signs on it. <laughs> Always comes yeah. down to the dollar It comes down to the dollar, dollar signs. It, we, we could not afford it. Our budget just simply did not accommodate that. We worked really, really hard for about six or seven years trying to raise enough money to refurb this building because it was kind of that long in the process. I mean, it wasn't necessarily this building we were raising money for, but we knew we needed to do something. I can imagine in a house museum that you're telling the story of a family living there and the history of them, and because that's their context, that's their home, to represent 21 cities with one house museum just doesn't work. It was a very creative tour. We did a lot of the doctor's history on the main floor, but when we got in the basement or upstairs on the second floor, that's when we would focus more on you know, this is something from this township or that's something that so-and-so had, they lived over in Columbia Heights or whatever. So it was, it flowed okay because we kind of melded the whole thing. I mean, the, the initial talk in the parlor was this was the house, this is who lived here, da-da-da-da-da. Then it became the Historical Society in 1971. We opened to the public, and now we collect the community history from all around the county. So you will see things from all different time periods, and you will see things from all over the county that have nothing to do with the doctors, but that's because we're the county museum. So that was kind of the overview people got at the beginning of the tour, which may or may not have been successful in most cases. What were some of the stories that you told at that time? There's, there's just so many great stories. The things that mean the most to me that I remember most are the things with really cool stories. The stories is what I really loved. So if it had a great story to it, I was all over that piece. Well, and the people too. Yes. Well, the stories are the people. So yeah, there were some things that I just totally ignored because I didn't like them and that they didn't have a story and it was just there. It's a loom. We don't know who had it, where it came from, why it was done. It's a loom. I'll skip that up over here. I got Sorry. to be a little bit of a rebel once in a while with tours. No, not you. No, not me. How did the collecting change from taking in something like a loom that was just there to decorate a space because it was old to taking in things with better stories? That was an effort because it was not uncommon at all to come to work in the morning and here'd be a box of stuff on the porch. Ding dong ditch. Uh-huh. 
Exactly. <laughs> and you had no idea where it came from, who left it. It was, and sometimes it even had stickers left over from a garage sale on it. <laughs> but it was old, so they brought it to us. So a lot of that stuff never made it in. It just went around the back door and kind of disappeared. But then on the other hand, one day I pulled up into the back of Colonial Hall where we parked and there was this humongous, I'm talking huge framed canvas thing leaning against the back door. I'm like, what? So we go over and start checking this thing out and it is the memorial for World War One that used to hang in Anoka High School that listed all of the names of Anoka High School students that ended up in World War One. It's amazing, it's fabulous leaning up against the back door one morning when we came to work. Do we know who leaned it up against yeah, the building? Yeah, we did, we did okay. finally track down um, because we knew people and we kept asking people. And I mean, we brought that baby in right away. It took three of us to carry it in. And brought that thing in right away and, and just went, wow. Um, we did a little bit of conservation work on it, what little we dared do that we knew we could do safely, which was an effort because couple people on the staff at that time just thought we could put some glue and and you know piece of fabric on the back and pick, fix up the hole or whatever and so but we weren't a professional staff at that point right. we didn't know right. we were doing the best we knew how to do at the time and I will not fault these people in the slightest because they kept some amazing stuff mm -hmm. they did some amazing groundwork and that's how we could build and keep growing right so not dissing them in the least, but it was looking back on it, we only did what we knew we could do safely, and maybe that was even a little bit too much. But then we did eventually have it professionally conserved. But it was great. We did talk to people. We found out who dropped it off. It had been his, in his garage. He thought it was his dad's that had gotten it from the high school when they were doing some sort of redecorating, remodeling project, whatever. But that's, and he had it. He thought, well, he kind of wanted that space, so he'd bring it over to us. <laughs> it's a great artifact. It was, it's, it's fabulous. I mean, we took it upstairs, mind you, up the spiral staircase and hung that baby in the back hall of Colonial Hall up there, and it went floor to ceiling. That's pretty impressive. Uh-huh. Should have seen us try to take it out. <laughs> You can do anything you set your mind to. <laughs> well, so how did you learn to go from the programming tour, volunteer, wrangling into building exhibits? Because you were quite good at that. It kind of was defiance, probably more than anything. Um, when we first moved into this building, we had a staff of four. And we moved in in, in steps. Um, we were closed for an entire year, basically, because we just didn't have the space between the two and trying to do whatever. But in the interim of between leaving there and, and opening here, we lost, we were down to only two staff people, me and one other person. And she didn't have any experience with exhibits. She was more a front desk type person, but she did tours. And we had a person on the board who suggested, oh, let's bring in Split Rock Studios to do our exhibits for this. This was about like March-ish, April, no, February or March, it was around the annual meeting. And 
Split Rock Studios came in and they did their big proposal of you know exhibit plan and all that kind of stuff and they I spent like two days with them trying to show them what we had so they knew what they could work with and they came back to the next meeting next board meeting and said well for twenty thousand dollars we can have you some concept drawings to hang up in your exhibit hall when you open in July that's a lot of money and we were going to have concept drawings for our grand opening <laughs> I went nuts. I just, no, no. They, they weren't out the door and I'm going, we're not doing that. And I was about the only staff person left anymore. So they really didn't have a lot of choice but to listen to me. I said, we're not doing that. They, well, what can we do instead? We don't have anybody. And I said, you give me whatever volunteer help I need, stay the heck out of my way, and I will have exhibits in there by the time we open in July. And everybody just kind of looked at me and said, can you do that? And I said, I will do that. I about killed myself, mm -hmm. but we had exhibits when we opened in July. What were the first exhibits? Oh, one was a, I stole the idea from MHS. I even called them and asked them permission, so I didn't really kind of you. <laughs> a to Z, Anoka County, A to Z. And I made sure I had artifacts from every single community, all represented. And it was, you know, A was for, I don't remember, artists or something. And the idea was that we had just this random bunch of oddball stuff, but a lot of it was the stuff that was on exhibit at Colonial Hall, because that way I knew people who were used to seeing it there would come here and they would see it again. It was on exhibit again. And that comfort factor I thought was really important, and it did help a lot of people. A lot, we had a lot of people come back and say, oh, I was afraid you wouldn't have any of that stuff out anymore. It was all gone. No, it's all here and you got to see it. So that first Christmas we did, I did a, a 1970s Christmas in the lobby and a 1900 Christmas in one section of the exhibit hall so that we had the Christmas stuff there so we could keep those people happy and on board. And after they saw those things, everybody was like, oh, well that's pretty cool. We got this building to put it in now. And look at all the stuff we can have out here. That's pretty cool. So we brought a lot of, along a lot of our old-time members that really weren't happy about us leaving Colonial Hall. So that it was a lot easier than we, a couple of years later, we were able to cut our ties more with never going back to being a historic house over there. And nobody objected anymore then. But then we've proven, we'd proven we had all the stuff and we were still going to put it out so you could see it. It was very wise. You know, in retrospect. I was smarter than I knew I was, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I knew we needed to do some of that, but I didn't know how much we needed to do, and it turned out it worked out really well because we got a whole bunch more donations. We could do some other things like tint the glass and stuff like that, too, that we didn't have the money to do to start with, but people saw what we were doing and said, hey, this is cool. We're on board. What was the next phase of research that you started doing, the next big project after that? Um, we started cultivating a lot of relationships with different groups. Uh, we discovered there was, actually it was Dennis Berg, he was a county commissioner at that time, told us there was some agricultural money for grants, but we would have to tell the story of agriculture. So we did that in three chunks, uh, taking three different time periods, and we did a lot of work with the, with the farmers the sod farmers, the cow farmers, you know, anybody in the county that farmed and did a big exhibit 
for those years of that particular one. We started with the most recent, you know, we went current to 50 years back to 1950, which was a lot of fun. Those old farmers were great to work with. They were just a blast. We had so much fun working with them because they really took ownership. I had a tractor loaned to me, and we got it in the building with about a half an inch on each side, the spare coming in the door. Um, I was able to borrow a cow, a big plastic yard cow that was like $2,000. It cost more than a real cow at the time. <laughs> got to borrow that. Um, we built a barn. We had just all sorts of stuff. And it worked out really well because those, they went out and they were ambassadors, but then they were also super resources because, well, my dad or my grandpa started this farm in Burns at, you know, so then we went to 50 to 1900. So we had all these connections and stuff already built in for the next phase of the exhibit. And the last phase of the exhibit, the, uh, 1900 back to the beginning of the county in 1857 that was when we were able to coincide that exhibit to time so that was our, our sesquicentennial for the county when did you start doing the school programs actually i was doing the school programs before i started with the historical society because i didn't think it, Okay, and back up. As a kid, when I was in school, we were taught history and social studies, which you memorized all the presidents and their birthdays. Mm-hmm. When I went back to college after having the kids and everything, all, all that kind of, you know, take the time out thing, I went back to school for history, and I, I knew history was a lot more fun than that. And it just really irked me that that's how you know teaching history was you know, memorize a bunch of names and dates. So I put together a couple programs on the Civil War because that's what my area of study was. And I approached teachers and I got to go do some of these. It's kind of like a historian in residence type of deal through District 11. And that just kind of was growing. So when I got hired at the Historical Society, I said, okay, I have these contracts to do these. How about we just kind of start shifting that and that'll be a historical society thing instead of an, in a, a personal thing and you get the programs. Well, they'd have been fools to say no, so yeah, they didn't. Absolutely. And that's how the program started with the outreach and we had to do it as outreach when we were at Colonial Hall. There wasn't room to do anything else. Right. How is it different with the digital age? You know, the, the exhibits and the handyman work and the, the hands-on volunteer and before the, the digital world really took over and skills have changed. Maybe that was serendipitous too, that I retired just on the cusp of that really taking off. I mean, the, the digital stuff that we were able to do for backdrops and labels and things like that was just phenomenal. But I, do, I don't have those skills. I've got to go in there and start building a trench and slapping mud on it. I can come up with a recipe. I can invent the recipe for mud, but putting it on a digital set, setting would be a lot harder for me. So I think it probably was very serendipitous that I retired right when I did because I'd have struggled with some of the, the digital stuff. I just don't have the experience in that. 
I'd have the ideas if somebody else could digitize it. Because we don't build exhibits like you did. No. No, you don't have it. You've never built a jungle. You've never had a cornfield. <laughs> or a World War One trench that was handicapped accessible, I'll have you know. <laughs> so was the jungle, by the way. <laughs> so it's just very different. And it's not, one is not better or worse than the other. They're just very different. I, I really liked the contextual kinds of exhibits where you walk in and you see the uniform on a mannequin in a jungle. Um, and our board was very much concrete thinkers like that too. They wanted to see that, what's that wow factor of the next exhibit? What's going to hook people in? Um, I think we as a society have gone more digital friendly too. I mean, we're, we're expecting more digital than what we ever did before. I mean, I can't even tell you how many exhi museum exhibits I've explored and programs I've watched on online mm -hmm. in the last five years, four years, especially since COVID. Mm -hmm. So I think our worldview as a society has changed, and that's probably why it's a good thing that I'm not doing exhibits anymore. But now, I think from my perspective, you know, we're getting 45,000 eyeballs on our website in a year. Way more than ever came into the museum. Right, and so I think this is what I struggle with right now, is we're still in that transition between the expectation of one group of people for the physical and the other group of people for the digital, and then the other group that just wants social media components, you know, and, and the, the shorter videos. And it's know. hard to meet everybody's needs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think it's a whole new world of change of how to incorporate the two pieces because there's still nothing like the real thing, no matter what. I mean, that's why we collect the real thing in the museum. If all we were collecting is pictures, take a picture of that object, get rid of the object, it'd be a whole lot easier to store and preserve. But to have the real thing occasionally, I think is really important too, even if they only see it digitally, but they see that object in a bowl or a table or whatever it's sitting on, and they know it's really there, and they could go see it if they wanted to do that. So I think there's going to be a merge, maybe, of the two things. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see where it goes. Museums are changing their approaches. Well, it's an evolution. Mm -hmm. Always. Always an evolution. Today is different than yesterday. Which brings me to one other question. Do you remember the day that you got internet? Oh, gosh. It wasn't until we moved into this building. <laughs> it was when we moved into this building that we got the first internet. Oh, we just skipped the 90s, huh? Skipped the 90s, man. <laughs> we went right to 2002, or 2001, excuse me, was when we moved into this building. Um, and then the following summer was when we opened the exhibits. And yeah, that was so cool. We could get email. Oh! That was the best thing. And the first computer we had was over at Colonial Hall. This was before the internet. This was when you know, AOL dial-up was new. And we got, it was a hand-me-down TRS Radio Shack TRS-80. <laughs> I mean, we called it the Trash 80. <laughs> and it was so amazing because we could type something and go back and edit it. And we didn't have to retype the whole thing. <laughs> it was so cool. It was the five and a half inch floppies. Oh gosh, yes, okay. yes, the big ones, yes, yeah. 
And then you had a printer to print it out on? Not to start with. Oh, okay. So we could only type it, we couldn't. <laughs> but I had a printer at home, so everybody would all type it all up and then we put it on the floppy and I'd take it home and print it out and bring no. it back. <laughs> we didn't have a printer. <laughs> Not until somebody donated one. And that probably had the fringes on the side. Oh, sure, the green yeah. and white striped paper. Yep. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. We did have one of the galloping golf ball typewriters, though, that would go back and you could actually put, you know, a few sentences into memory, and then if you changed your mind, you could tell it to change and it would change it for you. I think we found that about four years ago in the collection. Oh, probably. Yeah, I, I, through the years, I discovered there were many things that had acquisition numbers put on them and put into the collection that should have never been in the collection. They were the dishes that were left in the house for us to use for lunch. They were the typewriter that we got a new one, and the old one just went in the closet. And somewhere along the line, somebody put a number on it. Hence the big deaccessioning project. Yes, we did a huge one about, I want to say, 2008 or so. And we did clean out a lot of those things because we did an exhibit. Actually, I did all this work on the deaccessioning stuff out in one corner, one section of the exhibit hall. And then when we got all this junk brought out there, tons of stuff out there, then we brought in past employees. And I, what do you see here? Do you know the stories of this or that or whatever thing? We got some really cool stories from some of the objects that we were able to put with them. We also found out that, oh, well, that was just brought for us to use. That wasn't an artifact. <laughs> Which made it really easy to not have that be an artifact anymore because it never was supposed to be. So right. that was really easy to deaccession some of that stuff. And we got rid of some, I think about six treadle sewing machines because everybody kept bringing us their treadle sewing machines. Well, you can sew and fix things with this. It's mm -hmm. not its not to be an artifact. You can just sew on it and oh, fix no. things. <laughs> and I think we got rid of six in that process. But we took it to um, an auction company that specialized with antique stuff, and we got some good money back out of it. So we were able to buy a lot of preservation materials because anything that was sold, any money came in, went back to archival boxes, tissue, you know, furniture for storing bowls or whatever it was we might need, that's what we bought with it. Yeah, for sure. A million miles of mylar for all those maps in the collection. But that was a grant project. We did have some money, that was we got a grant to do that. And we were able to encapsulate a lot of maps and make them so they were more stable and more usable, which was the goal. Up until then, they'd been rolled and stood in like paper tubes in a box. Don still found some of those last year. Oh, I'm quite sure. There were a lot of them because I remember the one closet in Colonial Hall. That was the map closet, and it was just nothing but rolled up maps everywhere except for one shelf, and that's where the little ones went because they could lay down up there. And that closet was full because there was a shelf about four feet off the ground so we could put, it was big plastic garbage cans, and we'd put, roll them up and stand them in there, and they would be all across the top shelf and across the bottom shelf on both sides of the closet. As you said, you did the best you could with what you had. Exactly. It was, we couldn't do anything more. It was what we could afford to do. It was what we had staff to do, and we were growing. I think our budget maybe was $25,000 a year at that point. So what we, what we saved is here now. How did you know it was time to make the leap into the bigger budget and the bigger 
organization and how how did you feel that pinch we were offered different artifacts things that we should have taken because they had tremendous history and there was nowhere to put them away so we we had to put a moratorium on accepting almost anything if it wasn't paper we couldn't accept it and even that was a stretch some days and the other thing that happened was we had put so much stuff in Colonial Hall. And at one point in its past, Colonial Hall had been remodeled to be like a, a, a big open area on the second floor. Well, we had a lot of stuff crammed in the attic. The attic was full. And we had so much weight up there that it started to bow and the plaster was starting to crack in places because we were overloading it and some of these load-bearing walls on the second floor were removed. And then the Colonial Hall itself had this big, big open area with no support walls in it for the parlor. So we were, we were in danger of really doing damage to the building. And we had a grant, oh, I, it was from the AASLH, I believe. No, it was not that. It was Museum Service, IM, IMLS. That's it, IMLS. We got a grant from them and for a survey of our collections and our facility. And the architect who came in about had a heart attack and said, you cannot have all that stuff in those places. You have to get weight off those walls. You have to shore them up. So we brought in um, a, a carpenter and he put in some temporary walls, load-bearing temporary wall things so that we wouldn't collapse the floors. And we then made a deal with the county because they had just opened their new chunk of the courthouse so we could bring 50 boxes or 100 boxes, whatever it was, I don't remember the number, of heavy stuff, paper, books, things that weighed up fast. And we were able to put it in the county archives in their storage area. So we got a lot of that weight out. And at that point, it's like, well, this isn't working anymore. We had a city council person and some people on the, on the county board that kind of put their heads together and said, okay, start fundraising and awareness raising. And this is going back to like 1993, four, saying we, we need to have a better space to do this. And they kind of put their heads together and they started trying to plan out because at that point we knew there was going to be a new library built out on County Road 116, Bunker Lake Boulevard. And the discussion was what was gonna to happen to this particular site where the old library was, what's gonna happen. So these things kind of all sort of melded in together at the same time. Mm -hmm. And the between the city and the county, they were able to work it out that we could move into this building. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had to pay for all the renovations and we did a lot of stuff to it to make it be a museum rather than a library. But it, the envelope itself was really cool. Mm -hmm. And we loved the building because, I mean, it's a classic 60s, mid-60s building. It's a brick bomb shelter. It is. But that was <laughs> the architecture of the 60s. I mean, look around. How many other buildings yeah. are around like that? I mean, yeah. so it, it is a great piece to preserve that way, too. But thankfully, we had people on our side on both the county and the city level at that point that saw that we were really desperate mm -hmm. for space. For I mean, if we were going to ever be anything more than those ladies on the corner that didn't let you touch anything and kept the door locked, it had to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're forever grateful to the county and the city still. Oh, yes, very much so. 
absolutely. Vicki, this has been so much fun to sit and talk to you. and <laughs> All these crazy things we remember. So please come back soon and we'll do a Vicki 2.0. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. <laughs> we can talk about the mud recipe for World War I trenches Ooh. that are handicapped accessible. All right, fair enough. We'll bring Sarah in for the jello wrestling, right? I like it. <laughs> Right. Thanks, Vicki, so much. Oh, thanks for having me. It was fun. Good to walk down memory lane. Read all about it in the Noka County Library Minute. Hello, I'm Diana Nurberg, an adult services librarian for Anoka County Libraries, and this is your Library Minute, fiction books set in museums. First, we have The Memory Collectors by Kim Neville. In this fantasy novel, two women with a gift for feeling the emotions people leave behind on their objects come together to create a museum of memories. They attempt to curate the collection to not only literally feel good, but to help heal people of emotional wounds. This piece of magical realism illustrates the power ordinary objects have to leave a lasting imprint on us. Next, we have The Museum of Forgotten Memories by Anstey Harris. Fans of Evie Drake Starts Over will recognize this tale's themes of hope and renewal. Kate's life has taken a somber turn when her husband dies, she loses her job, and as a result, her home. She starts over in the Victorian taxidermy-filled museum owned by her husband's family in a small town. While it has its blemishes, Kate is soon taken with the quirky little museum and sets off on a mission to save it. But first, she must confront her past and the truth of her husband's passing. Next, we have The Keeper of Lost Things by Ruth Hogan. Anthony has made it his life's mission to reunite lost objects with their owners after his own fiancée died the day he misplaced a treasured keepsake of hers. On his own deathbed, he passes on his mission to Laura, his lonesome assistant. As she steps into the role, she also steps into a new community and a stronger sense of self. The Keeper of Lost Things has been called a heartwarming novel about the objects that hold magic and meaning for our lives and the surprising connections that bind us. Then we have Under the Egg by Laura Marks Fitzgerald. In this middle-grade mystery, Theodora Tenpenny tries to solve the mystery of her grandfather's painting. Is it actually a stolen masterpiece from the Metropolitan Museum of Art? In her search for the truth, Theo must learn to leave her loner comfort zone and build a community. This book will leave readers itching to visit their nearest museum. Find these books and so much more at your local library. Until next time, happy learning. Get those library cards and reserve your copy today. Direct links to these books and more can be found in the episode show notes at anocacountyhistory.org. Technology and computers are such a part of our life as she records digitally on a Bluetooth microphone <laughs> for a podcast. It's weird to think of the museum without all of those things. It really is. It really is. Because even when I started, there were a few people that didn't have email, but very quickly that moved on. And the, the COVID pandemic forced us into a digital place that we may not have grown into as quickly. Mm -hmm. But it is really different to think back to not having everything on the cloud, not being able to access the collection like we do. But even if the museum is so much different than it was then, so many things are the same. Like sharing Anoka County history and 
trying to do that next little bit better as a museum and growing and learning and being like, I can do it. Of course we can do it. We'll figure it out. <laughs> Our mission has not changed, but the way we work has. Exactly. And we're all carrying on a little bit of Vicky and her work ethic. Work ethic. Every time we eat in the uh, break room. Oh, that's right. <laughs> we have a little uh, sign that the break room is dedicated to Vicky. Who only ever ate a granola bar for lunch. She got here so early. <laughs> Vicki, thank you so much for everything that you've done for us and hope we can do another follow-up in five years. It's a plan. See everybody next time. Bye. If you have a question, want to visit our show notes page for each episode, or would like to share your own story, go to anokacountyhistory.org. Help History 21, the podcast, reach more ears by subscribing and reviewing on your podcast provider. We're all over social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for all those who scroll by. And for our Vault members, you can find special access to podcast extras as well as the latest digital resources at History 21, the Vault, located on our website. Remember, the present is the past of the future. <laughs>